All righty. We are live with Steve Hoffman, otherwise known as Captain Hoff, as he is known in the Silicon Valley. And now globally, we were just talking about his travels of late. He is the chairman and CEO of Founders Space, which is one of the world's leading incubators and accelerators. I had the opportunity to interview him previously on Inside Out, and it was an amazing, amazing interview. So I'm so delighted to have Steve back. He's an angel investor, a serial entrepreneur. He's the author of the award-winning book, Make Elephants Fly, which if you haven't read that book, what are you waiting for? I'm telling you, it will change your life. Extraordinary book. One of the things I love most about it is that there's no fluff. It's new concept after new concept after new concept. He doesn't restate the same concept over and over and over again, like most books. He's also just released a brand new book, which is The Five Forces That Change Everything, which I just got my copy. I got my audio version of that, uh, and I can't wait to dive in on that. But today, we're going to talk about this incredibly insightful book that he wrote called Surviving a Startup. Uh, He got his start in Hollywood. He produced hundreds of shows uh, for television. He was a pioneer in interactive TV. Uh, One of his early startups was a venture-funded startup called Spider Dance. He also went went on to start two other startups in the gaming space. And now he's paying it forward. He's on a mission to help entrepreneurs, help founders on their journey. And today, we have the distinct pleasure to talk and have a conversation to help to demystify and decode what it takes to survive a startup. So with that, it gives me great pleasure to say, Steve, otherwise known as Captain Hoff, welcome to Insight Live. Billy, it is great to be back. And it's really nice to meet Brendan, your new partner. Yes. So good to have you. And so let's start with this. And and there's so much I want to go into, but the first thing is I love the foundation that you set early on in the book. It's almost like a tone setter, which is, let's be real about this. It's not easy to start a company. Your odds of success are very, very small. And so you say in no uncertain terms, you better be darn sure this is what you want to do if you're going to move forward. And the reality is the, the best way to avoid failure is to not start to begin with. So you ask the foundational questions, why are you doing this? What are the reasons that you're doing your startup? You actually list 10 reasons why you, you shouldn't do a startup and, and more specifically outlining the many reasons people often have for having a startup aren't necessarily good reasons. So can you talk a little bit about the common reasons people start a company and why those aren't usually the best reasons? I can tell you from my own experience, from working with hundreds of entrepreneurs, that when you start a startup, a lot of people I hear, why did you start this company? And they'll say, well, I hated my job. Well, you hate your job. That doesn't mean you should do a startup. That, that They don't correlate. Another reason, a popular reason, is I just like to be independent. Well, again, that isn't an ideal reason to do a startup. Some don't want to go into the office. They just don't. They want to work for themselves and they want to work at home. Honestly, you can come up with a million reasons to do a startup. A lot of entrepreneurs I meet in Silicon Valley, they are starting a start because I want to be rich. I want to be famous. Honestly, you know, that might be fine. You need a better reason than that. And let me tell you, the startups that tend to succeed, they do not come from people who are, are giving 
other reasons than one. There is one only, really only one reason that you should want to do a startup. And that is because in the world, in your life, you have seen a need, a real need for something that isn't there. And you want to bring that to life. You want to either a lot of entrepreneurs that are very successful build a product for themselves. They're like, I need this product. If you look at Slack, the company Slack, that whole internal messaging system was built by the engineers for the engineers because they didn't have that tool. That's a great way, great reason to do a startup. You're at a company and you need to get something done. And it's, you know, you can't figure, none of the solutions are ideal. Maybe that's a great reason to do a startup and build that if there are a lot of other companies or a lot of other people like you out there. Mm. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I think one doesn't have to do with another. If you don't like your job or if you want more freedom, or that doesn't always equate to you needing to start a company. And the fascinating part is, you know, having left a corporation and now being in the entrepreneurial space and starting my own company, what you say really rang true for me that you know, it's actually, if you want quality of life, startups, probably not the way to go. I mean, if you want to have your dinners and time off and all these other things that you kind of take for granted when you work for a company, you need to think twice. So another thing that you do, and I really love this is you dispel some commonly held beliefs. So, you know, having a startup doesn't inherently mean that you are going to find something that's going to create meaning in your life or give you purpose. I think I worked for Tesla and yes, Tesla is a mission-driven company, but not all companies change the world. Not all companies are going to have that. So can you talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned a moment ago, the fact that you need to be solving a problem at its core. That's what should be motivating and driving a founder or a group of founders. So can you talk a little bit more about that concept and also bearing in mind that we don't always have to have the quintessential purpose that we think we might need. This is really important to understand. And there are a lot of, there's a lot to unpack here. So first of all, you know, you're thinking of doing a startup. Every, you know, a lot of people are doing it. It's a trend now. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to build the next unicorn. I'm going to be a billionaire. Well, I will tell you, it is very, very, very few startups get to that point. They very, they, you know, it's, it's, you think because you read about it in the press all the time that every other startup is becoming a unicorn. It seems like that, but the reality is quite different. You know, the reason it's news is because these startups have done something exceptional. They have, and for every startup that is successful, there are literally, you know, a hundred startups that never reach that level. They don't all go out of business, but a lot of them, you know, they, they never become these hyper growth companies that IPO or get acquired for huge sums of money. So you need to be realistic when you start the company. Also, when I'm talking, I should clarify, you know, there are different types of being an entrepreneur. There are many different ways to do it. You could just be a consultant. Well, if you're being a consultant, some of the rules I say here don't necessarily apply. You could be a, you know, a consultant. You're never probably going to grow a big business, but you're not out to do that. I am talking about the people who really want to do these high growth startups that will have a huge impact on the world. So when somebody comes and they say, well, my boss is a tyrant. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do, they're always driving me to do stuff. So I want to go do this startup so I can be free. 
let me tell you from my own experience and from almost every entrepreneur I know, if you think your boss is bad, wait till you're the boss. Like you can never escape yourself. There are no weekends. Like you're always in your head. And there's a part that that voice in your head saying you could be working harder. You should be working harder. There's another thing to do. When you're in a company, no matter how boss bad your boss is, you can escape that person. But when that person is you, well, it's hard to get a divorce. So um, that's one of the reasons I say don't do it if you want an easier quality of life. Because first of all, you're going to be piling on all these things to yourself. You're going to be the worst boss you ever had. You're also going to have to work harder than you ever had before. And to, to add more to this, there's going to be financial uncertainty because at the early stages of a startup, unless you're incredibly wealthy or incredibly well-connected, you're going to be struggling. You're going to be spending your savings, your hard-earned money on this idea that may never materialize. Like, you know, the odds are like, you know, well over 50% of startups totally fail. And, you know, even the ones that succeed, very few make it really big. So you're going to be gambling. It's like going to Vegas with really bad odds. Like <laughs> you're putting your chip down on that roulette wheel and you're rolling it, and, but it's your life savings. And I'll tell you, if you think whatever pressure you're under right now in your day job is tough, add that to it. And then if you have family and other people who depend on you, just make it exponentially more stressful. Because first of all, you're gambling their money. Your, your significant other might not like that. There might be fights. You might not be around. There's just a lot to deal with with doing a startup. So I tell people, think twice. And if you're going to do it, make sure you do it the right way and make sure that you hone in on a business that, that has a better chance of succeeding. Because I will tell you, so many entrepreneurs go out into the world with an idea in their head that seems brilliant in their head. And I've, I've, had, I've had these brilliant ideas like every other day, but almost all of them are wrong. Like, because until you put that idea, it might seem like it might seem great, but until you introduce that idea to the real world, you, you may find out, and most people do, this is the number one reason startups fail. Nobody wants it. Like nobody really cares or they want it. Mm. They think it's a, a nice to have. Oh, it'd be nice to have that. Let me tell you. I have never seen a nice to have product succeed. <laughs> like everybody can tell you, oh, that'd be nice. People only, only use products either that they absolutely need. They're like, oh my God, I need this. This is a real pain point. I've got to have this. Or it provides an amazing value, an amazing experience that they, they can't get anywhere else that they've been waiting to come along. So if you can't do one of those two things, you should consider carefully whether you should do a startup. And my final thing is your personality. Like, can you handle stress? Like, mm. you know, some, some people handle stress really well. They're born entrepreneurs, like people who can just juggle a million things and everything's going wrong. And, you know, they're calm, they're fine. You know, they, they actually thrive on stress. There's other people who even the smallest thing can induce a huge amount of stress. Well, maybe you should not be the CEO, not be the founder. Maybe you should join somebody else's startup that is already going along. You can get the same thrill mm. without all the agony and, and, and anxiety. So that is my starting advice when you are considering doing a startup. It makes perfect sense. And what a great lead in to a topic that we're going to get into in a minute, which is building your initial team, because you've highlighted just how critical that piece is, that component is. I want to 
make sure, Brendan, if you want to chime in at any point, man, don't hesitate. This is our very, very first live with a guest. So we're going to figure out the best way to, to operate here. But um, one question before we get into the building of the team, is this something that you call the devil's candy and how we really should be mindful and avoid the devil's candy? Can you tell us what exactly that is? There's a couple things that are the devil's candy. And I call it the devil's candy because it's really tempting. Like the devil's holding out some sweet thing for you and you, you want it so badly. Well, number one is borrowing money from family and friends. Like it seems great. It seems great to your family and friends because they are absolutely sure you are going to be the next unicorn that IPOs and they are all going to be rich because they're not investors or because they just love you. They care for you and they believe in you. So if you take their money, this is a really, really dangerous thing. And I will tell you why. First of all, they aren't experienced investors. Most likely, maybe you have an uncle that is, well, that's a venture capitalist. You can take that uncle's money. But still, remember, you know, the odds are you're not going to succeed. The odds are they will not get their money back. What happens then? Look forward. What happens at Thanksgiving? What happens when you go home? You know, everybody is happy when you're doing well. But when you lose their money, money is a funny thing. It can really drive a wedge between people, between best friends, between even between family members. Do you want the rest of your life to have that distance between you, even if it's unspoken? Like a lot of people won't make you feel guilty about losing their money, but they won't forget it. I can guarantee you that. It's different. So I tell people, look, if you can't get a qualified investor, somebody who is an angel investor out there, who isn't related to you, who isn't your best friend, to invest in your company, why should you go ask your family? Who literally, they don't know what they're doing and they're doing it for the wrong reasons. It's so you, you should, like if, if you have a real business with a real business model that has a chance of succeeding, you darn well should be able to get somebody else to invest in this. You shouldn't have to rely on your family and friends. And when, if, God forbid, your company does go down in flames, that is the time you need your family and friends by your side, supporting you, helping you. If, you. if you're losing their money, it's hard to cry on their shoulder because they are kind of upset that you just lost their money. So think about that. You're playing with fire when you're tempted by the devil's candy. Uh, you take some of it because it may be easy to get somebody to give the money, but then you run into some issues one of the things I found really interesting is that you did say that if it's a parent or a grandparent, you're a little bit more accepting of it, but more as a an advance on inheritance or a loan in that case. Is, is that right? Yes. So if they're your parent and they honestly don't care if they you lose their money, some parents are like this. Like they just don't care. Like they're going to give you the money anyway. So they love you and they just want to give you this experience, just like they would pay for your college education. If it's that type of relationship, you can consider taking their money. Yeah. So, and, you know, be honest with them. You know, you're going to lose your money. Like if at the very least, be honest, like say the odds of you getting your money back are like one in 10. If you can live with that, I will take your money gladly because you're not getting it back. But they, you really have to make that clear. And if they want to support you and they think this is a great experience for you and they want to basically give you their money. Sure, that is okay. If they are thinking of getting a return on investment or even their money back, 
not so okay. Makes sense. Okay, so let's talk about team. And then in a minute, uh, I definitely want Brendan to to kind of dig in on a couple topics. One thing that I, I do want to get to also is just how some of the best businesses, some of the most iconic businesses started as one thing and moved into another thing. So we're going to get into that in a minute. But before we do, let's talk about team because I think it dovetails nicely from this idea about talking about people who are committed, not only your investors, but your team. And you've highlighted that, A, it's really important that you're not doing it on your own. You you make a strong case for having at least a co-founder and that most of the successful unicorns especially have two or three founders. Um, You also say that the early team members should, if at all possible, have a good percentage of their income actually be in the form of equity. And that not only is a, a great model because you're you're not bleeding cash, but it also shows their commitment level. So can you talk a little bit about all the different layers of building a team, especially early on? Because I think that's a, a critical point that you bring up in your book. Before I dive into team, I want to say one thing. Every rule I'm giving you can be broken, has been broken. And I say this in the book, like you can break every rule I give you and still be successful. Right. So great point. What I'm giving you are rules of thumb. And I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from doing a startup. I am a crazy dreamer. I go out and do this stuff regardless of whether it's practical. So if you're that type of person, you know, all I want you to do is know what you're getting into so that you can make the best decision for you. So for me, I've always just dived right in crazy stuff, made a lot of mistakes. But then again, that's life. And that's the type of life I want to live. So that's my caveat. In terms of the first thing you should do when you launch a startup, a lot of entrepreneurs out there, like they think, I have to have the right idea. I I have to have the right idea or I won't start the company. Honestly, now this will seem strange to you because there is a myth out there that you're going to have that epiphany in your head and you're going to go out there and the world is just going to love it. Well, in almost every case, what's in your head doesn't map to the real world. So I tell people, if you want to maximize your odds of success, don't pick a specific idea. Specific ideas cause problems because, first of all, you go you, once, once you fall in love with your idea, well, there's an expression, love is blind, and it is. Like, you love your idea. So you're trying to sell it to everybody you meet. And, you know, you go to potential customers, you're trying to sell them their idea. You, you know, you're trying to sell the people who join your company on your idea instead of listening to their ideas. You know, everything you're doing, you're trying to push your idea on them when you have no proof. Because if it's a new idea, if it's a game changing idea, if it's something out there that is really going to different from anything anybody else has done before, then there is no proof. Like you haven't tried it. So I tell people, just throw out the idea, throw away the idea. They're like, what? I say, start a company with no idea. Like what? I say, pick a direction, an area you are really interested in, an area that you think really needs to change. Like I said, there's a problem out there. I don't know what the right solution to this problem is, but I know people have this headache or there's an area that I'm fascinated about that I know I could improve. Like I could make it so much better with new technology that is coming down the pipeline. That is what you do. But in order to be successful, most of the time, it's better not to do it alone. I will tell you, it's better to spend 80% of your time, 80% of your time, not building your product, not thinking of an idea, not even initially talking to customers, 
but going out there and actually finding the people you want to work with, the people who complement your skill set. People out there, like if you're not technical, get a technical person, right? Because most of the great ideas these days uh, involve some sort of technology. Like you have to have it in order to beat out existing competitors. If you're not good at creating user experience, design, all those things, get a great designer. If you're a horrible salesperson, like get somebody who can sell like anything. This is really critical first step. Once you have these people, everything else seems to fall in place. I will tell you, because what you do is you don't have an idea, you have a direction. So it's nobody's idea. You go out there with your team and they may have ideas that are better than yours, which is perfectly fine. You go out there with your team and say, we're going to explore this area. I think there's this, I've identified this problem and there may be a lot of different ways we can help solve it. I've identified this opportunity where we can use tech to transform this industry, but there are a lot of different ideas I have. You go with your team and together you start brainstorming. Like, what if we did this? What if we did that? Let's talk to the customer. Let's listen to the customer. We're not trying to sell them on something that preconceived idea we have. We are finding out what they really want in the marketplace that they aren't getting from anybody else out there. That with a team that can actually execute on it, because honestly, execution is really hard. Like I've seen teams out there, te- really teams out there that had really brilliant ideas, but they, they weren't great teams. They didn't function great. They couldn't implement it. And invariably, they end up dropping the ball somewhere along the way. Somebody else picks up that idea and runs with it and they're left in the dust. So you want to have the team where when you have that idea, when everything falls into place, you can run with. I love that, Captain Hoff, and thanks so much for for sharing that. You know, I think what would be super awesome for the audience to hear is I was wondering if you could walk us through that process with the different startups that you've built and the different co-founders that have worked with you. What do you found worked well, and and was it the same founding team each time? What was complementary about each of those founders? And as you were building out the product, how did you convince them to work on your ideas? That that is great. So when I started companies. I did a number of companies. My first company was Bootstrap. I literally did paid for everything myself. It was a game company. So I'm, I'm into games. Captain Hoff is my nickname, but it was my gamer handle. That's you know, So that's what everybody calls me who plays games with me. So we did a game company. I know games. I love games. I built this game because I love games and I wanted to play this game and it wasn't out there. So that was me building a product for myself. I was a customer. And sure enough, that game, it's called Gazillionaire. So it's all about, actually, it's ironically what I do today. It teaches people to be entrepreneurs. And that game just took off in a big way. So I was very successful at first. I didn't have a lot of people, but I could code the game all myself. My wife, she did all the artwork, you know, and together, like for a game, a low budget game, that was enough. We brought in some sound designers, some other artists and stuff like that. But we, this is another thing I tell entrepreneurs and it's the thing we did right. Do an idea you can do on no money. Like if you can bring that product fully to market without anybody else's money, which is what we did, then all you're risking is your time, like literally your time. So this is really important. This is why when I say get co-founders and give them a lot of equity, because you guys, if you have the talent to build the whole product yourself and you're all fully invested, boom, you can get that to market and prove that it works. And that is when investors like to come in. You know, most smart investors anyway, they don't want to come in early. They like, they call them venture capitalists, but they aren't that adventurous. They really want to sit back, wait, 
for you to prove that this idea is brilliant, you know, it, yeah, and it's really taking off, then they get adventurous. They're like, okay, because it's a sure thing. Um, they want you to take all that risk. So I did this. This is my first company. It's called Lava Mine. That game, you know, went out there, was really successful, picked up by one of the top game publishers in the world, but it's still alive today. Like that game, you know, decades later is still selling because it was a great game. And then we produced a series of these games. That was my first company. My second company, the internet was coming along. So it was a while back, you know, the internet was being born. I saw this opportunity. I was like, these games are great. We're really doing well, but I should do something bigger. Like the, you know, this, this internet thing is going to change everything. So I found my friends who were also designing games. They had just launched the first massively multiplayer game. It was a casual game for Microsoft and they owned the back end, the whole gaming system. So we got together as a team because they had skills I didn't. I could code our very my very the simple games I did, the simple single player games. But this was something an order of magnitude more difficult, especially at that time. Like nobody really it, it was on the cutting edge of massively multiplayer gaming. There are very few out there. So we got together we launched that company as a team and it was the team, right? The engineer was brilliant. Like he had he basically single-handedly built this whole server system and everything else. And in those days, you didn't have Amazon or anything. You had to do it yourself. You know, it was it was really, really difficult from the hardware to the software. Um, the other person on the team was a designer and she was just an amazingly brilliant designer. So we all got together. We launched this company and it was still tough. Like it was still tough. Like we had the right team, but again, we didn't really know uh, where the market was. So our first idea was, it was at least my idea. I was the most passionate about this. I was like, we're going to build a platform. Platforms are better than products. Like we're going to build a massively multi-gaming platform, the first ever. And we're going to get every game developer in the world on this platform. That was the vision. Well, in the, in the 90s, the 1990s, the, the late 90s, you know, and early, it was a different world then. Game game developers, everybody was doing single player games, and when they looked at this massively multiplayer one, they were like, "Hey, I could just build this myself," because it was a build it yourself attitude. There weren't these platforms out there. It was really early in the internet days, like so. They were like, "Oh, I should just build this myself, or I'll put it on your platform, but I'll give you a tiny, tiny rev share." So we found, and I want all these customizations. So we found out early on that we were just too early for that one. That was like our first stumble. Our second. Thing. We said, well, we can't, working with these game developers, this is going to be like way too much hassle for what we're going to get out of it. Um, what we need to do is just launch our own product. And we called it Jabber Chat. And it was JavaScript was just being born. So it was a JavaScript plugin in the browser where you could play games and chat while you chat with people. And chat was a big thing in those days. It was like the beginning of the internet. Like people were chatting in browser and they could play games together. Wow. We allowed people to take this and embed it in any website. So any website could embed our little plugin in their site. It took off like crazy. Like it took off. We won um, South by Southwest, you know, the big thing. We won first prize for interactive. And we were on top of the world. But we weren't making any money. So we, we looked around like, how are we going to make money? It's been a while now. Like we started this company. We're struggling. We looked around. And actually, we ended up embedding um, 
advertising. So we found this advertising company called PV or something. It was the early days. They don't exist anymore. <laughs> and they, they had this ad network and we're like, wow, ads, that's great. Like we could, people will click on these ads and we'll make money. Banner ads. It was all new. Like this was before Google did ads, like that early. So we embedded them in and we waited a month. Like, and we were like, oh, that first check. All these people are using our, our platform. We're going to get a big check. Check comes in the mail. $13.58, not even enough to like buy a pizza. Like it was pitiful. Like we couldn't live off of that. So we had to pivot again, you know, because this is the early days of the internet. All these ideas were right. Like the massively multiplayer gaming industry, look at Steam, like and all these things, you know, the, the advertising, look at Google. Like we had the right idea. We were early. Mm. And then we found out MTV, like Viacom, they wanted to synchronize games to television. Boom. That was our ticket. So that's, that's what that's the story of my early startups. Man, I love it. It's so so valuable. You know, there's so much that stands out there in particular where you started with the the second company and it was about your friends. Cuz one of the things you talk about is you got to like these people. You got to you got to want to be around these people because you're going to be around them a lot. And you also talk about the the skill sets and but you also say in your book that it is good to find people with complementary skill sets, but it's not, it's not the only thing you look at. You got to look at, are these people that you want to be around? And then, of course, you can't forget the fact that they need to be committed. You, you bring up this question in your book, which is, are you interested or are you committed? And, and early on, you need to build a team of people who are as obsessed with the company's success as you are. This is so, so, so important. And when you find those people, I mean, it starts with team. Even before you do any of the, and you're a big believer in getting customer feedback and doing all of that. If I were to put it in order, it sounds like build the team, then build the, the company, and but don't be wedded to what that is because you need to be able to pivot based on what the customer wants. It's not just what you want. It's what the customer wants, but you got to know by listening. And then you start thinking about raising money. Don't be, don't spend all your time raising money if you're not figuring out what the customer needs. Because even though you might have thought the problem needed to be solved in a certain way, you might not actually have your finger on the pulse of the way in which it needs to be solved, which brings me to the topic that we briefly spoke on. This right now is being streamed all over. Uh, I would say social net, but it's not social net, it's LinkedIn. That's one of many examples. YouTube was going to be a dating site. I mean, example after example, but can you give a few more examples of companies that started one way and then pivoted in a new direction? And, and, and then what as a startup founder can we be doing to be willing to kill our babies, to not do the things that we're so wedded to do? I'll give you a great example. So there's a company most of us have heard of called Google. Like, Google, right? One of the most profitable companies in the world. Well, most people don't realize when Google started, Larry Page and Sergey Brin thought they were doing a nonprofit. A nonprofit, like Google, they just make money hand over fist. What were they thinking? Well, they were originally thinking of doing a basically a search engine, but very limited. It was for academics to find research papers online. And they made the algorithm and everything at Stanford. Their grad students thought, wow, this is really cool. And they didn't realize the value of Google until they started to see other search engines pop up. 
that were more mainstream, targeted at anybody who wanted to find anything on the internet. They said, wow, we actually have a better algorithm than they do. What if we repositioned ourselves in this direction? Even once they started to do that, they didn't realize what they were onto, which is ironic, you know, today looking back, and these are smart guys, so if they don't realize it, imagine yourself. They, they wanted to actually, they approached Excite at Home, this company that doesn't even exist anymore. Like that was this, this company that was providing early broadband provider. And they offered to sell Google to them for $750,000. They thought that was a lot of money. But Excite at Home turned them down. <laughs> Thank goodness for them, because it, Google wouldn't be Google today if it wasn't run by them. So you look at the world, and there's so many things you don't know. And you don't know what you don't know. Like you can only know, and even the smartest people in the world don't know these things. And you can see they make the wrong decision. But over and over and over again, this happens. You look at Yelp, super popular, right? Everybody goes there for the reviews. The reviews were a side feature they added later. They weren't even the core. They didn't know if people would want. They assumed that people might not want to review the places they went to. So they added it as an experiment. It turned out the reviews were everything. Like that was Yelp. Groupon, you know, this Groupon that, you know, went public, did all these things. They were literally a, a site, a nonprofit site called The Point, meant for doing social good. And they were floundering for the longest time when Andrew Mason, the founder, refused to part with that idea. He's like, we're a site to do social good. It was his investor that saw the opportunity and said, look, this site is going nowhere. But these people on your site, instead of doing social goods, they're selling, they're sharing deals together. Can we do that? And that's when Groupon took off. Over and over and over again, uh, people start in one direction, wind mm. up in another. And that's that's kind of one of the core things you need to realize as an entrepreneur. It's that your job is a job of discovery. Your job isn't to know the answers when you start. Your job is you're going on a crazy journey and you're going to really, great entrepreneurs are the ones who gather the most information about mm. their market, about their customers, about you know their competitors. Your job is to gather more information than anybody else. Because if you do, if you know more than everybody else, you can see the opportunity. So I tell entrepreneurs out there, a lot of them, like, I don't want to look at competitor sites, like, because we're going to do it better. Like they have an ego, like we're, we're the best. Why should I even waste my time on those? You should know everything your competitors are doing. You should be on, you should be a power user of your competitors, right? Because first of all, you can see what they do wrong. And, and, and it's obvious on their site when on your site, you know, you, you, your product, you think it's perfect, like theirs, you can be very critical of it, but you can also see when they introduce new things that really work early on so that of course you can appropriate them, which you should be doing. So you should know your competitors inside out. You spend a huge amount of time. You should embed yourself with your customers so that they, that they're, it's like a mind, a Vulcan mind meld, like you literally and your customers, you know, have the same mind and you see the world through their eyes. All of these things are critical. You must be reading my notes because literally the next topic that I was going to go into is this idea of not being afraid to copy the competition. And, and people are afraid of that word. And I use it intentionally. And you say smart entrepreneurs venture deep into enemy territory and that they would be foolish. They'd be foolish to not study the competition. And I love the way you put it. You actually want to become a power user. It's worth repeating. Become a power user of your competition's 
product or service. And so you actually go as far as to say copying is the best business model in the world, bar none. So why are people so afraid of this if it's so valuable and so important? And for those who are saying, yeah, yeah, I don't want to just copy. We know we don't want you to copy and just leave it there. We want you to copy and, and make it better. But let's talk about the make it better part. So first of all, there's a myth in society. And that's where the entrepreneur, the inventor comes, has this epiphany, this great idea and every, you know, and they, they take it to the world and the world loves it. That is not the way the world works. The really, really smartest people in the world copy like crazy. Like they, they appropriate everything that works. They don't care who made it. They don't have that ego and they don't buy into that myth. Look at Steve Jobs. Like you look at Steve Jobs. He made many amazing products. But every one of those products is based on copying. You know, the original Macintosh was copied from Xerox Park. You look at the, the iPod, which kind of relaunched Apple. There were a lot of MP3 players out there before the iPod. He just did it much, much, much better. He figured out what the consumer really wanted, but he copied that. You look at the iPhone, the Palm Pilot was way ahead of them. They had the Trio, which was basically the iPhone, like just not as cool. So in the world, whatever you're doing, you should be copying everything that works out there. Now, I tell you, you don't have to innovate on everything. You're not going to innovate on everything. What, you, what great startups do is they pick one thing, they, everything else they copy, and then they have one thing that they spike on that nobody else does. One thing that they do so much better than anybody else that everybody comes to them. And honestly, it can't just be a random one thing. So there are things out there we call features. Like features make a product just incrementally better. Like, oh, I have this feature. Great. You know, we're all using Gmail. Another email provider comes out there with an extra feature. Are we going to switch? I doubt it, right? What you have to do when I say uh, you spike on one, one innovation is that innovation has to offer a core value, not a feature, which is an addition, but a core value that they can't get anywhere. And a core value is something that people value so much that they will use, they, they absolutely need it. They will use your product in addition to another product or a replacement. It doesn't matter. They need that core value so much. So you need to identify that first and then put all your innovation effort into <clears throat> making that come to life in the way that solves those people's problems or gets them where they want to be. I love that idea of spiking, Captain Hoff, right? The, the founders who do really well are individuals who are able to spike carefully and thoughtfully. You know, one example that comes to my mind is Jeff Bezos from Amazon, where he specifically chose to focus on books. It's says easy to ship. And the product itself, having all the books online in a way that a normal book sh a bookstore in you know in, in any city like Sacramento just can't store creates a very unique value proposition that you just can't get anywhere so my question to you is out of all of the founders that you've seen in the valley in your and your long and very impressive career who would you say are your top 3 favorite entrepreneurs currently and why there are so many great entrepreneurs out there, it's really tough to choose. But you hit one on the head, Jeff Bezos. Like Jeff Bezos, whether you love Amazon or hate Amazon, and whenever a company gets as big as Amazon, it's it, we all love to hate it. So, But Amazon got as big as they did for a reason. And that is because Jeff Bezos realized a few things. One, really smart, narrowing his focus down. Like you can't boil the ocean. You can't do everything. He figures, I'm going to figure this out with books. 
And if I can figure it out with books, which are really easy to ship, they're small, they're all the, you know, roughly the same size, you know, and we have a real competitive advantage because we can stock every book in the universe in our online store, whereas a physical store, they can't. So that's a great starting point. If we can do it with books, we can do it with every other product category in the future, which are much harder to figure out. You know, now they're doing groceries, which are the hardest, you know, fresh foods and all that. But it's working even when previous startups tried that same exact same idea, shipping groceries, Webvan and others, and tanked, right? They were just too early. So he's really smart in understanding what he could do and when to do it, like when to do it. And then Jeff Bezos was really smart in one other area. He understood that his most powerful tool was to please his customer. Like if he could, if he could, he, he said like there, he realized there can be a lot of other online booksellers. And the only one that's going to win at the end of the day is the one that people come back and buy from again. Like if they have such a good experience. So he deferred profits. And this was a big issue for a long time. Now they're making money hand over fist. But I remember, you know, for years and years, like decades, they were not profitable. He deferred profits to create better customer experience. And if you look at one thing Jeff Bezos did that was just absolutely uh, brilliant, is he was one of the first people on the internet to say, I want to make it so easy for people to return products. Like I remember the day in the early internet where they would hide the return button. They would make you call a phone number where you got an automated reply and you'd have to go through all this stuff so that you would not return the product because of course they lose money when you return the product. They do not want you to return the product. Right. They want to be more profitable. That's how every other online retailer at the time thought. Jeff Bezos comes along and says, no, I want to make it so easy for you to return the product. Like it's brain dead simple. Well, People were like, that's a crazy idea. You're going to lose a lot of money. I don't care. At the end of the day, if a person doesn't want the product, I want them to return it because I know they will come and buy from us again. And that's exactly what happened. They not only bought from them again, they bought more products because they weren't afraid that they would have to return them. They like, it's super simple to return. So every step of the way, everything Jeff Bezos did, speeding up shipping, you know, the whole logistics and everything he's done to optimize shipping to your house in, in literally a day now or two days, it is just phenomenal. But all that was to please the cu customer and it cost him a lot of money. He had a long-term view, long-term view. You make those customers happy, you let them buy into you, they won't leave and, and nobody else can compete with you. Mm. So I would say he's number one. You know, we hear there's so many great entrepreneurs out there. Elon Musk is always in the headlines. So let's talk about him because he's a very different type of entrepreneur. He did not start small, <laughs> like, at least with his <laughs> latest startups. Like he had with PayPal and the other ones, he was, it was a small, smaller than going to Mars or doing electric cars. But he is, he is a phenomenal entrepreneur. And he is phenomenal because I have never seen a greater uh, a more charismatic, amazing salesperson than him. Like we don't think of him as a salesperson; we think of him as a visionary. But that's how what a good salesperson he is. He's like he paints himself as this visionary, and he is. He's he's really amazing. But he can sell like crazy. He's coming up with new ideas for crazy stuff. He keeps himself in the headlines every day. No Hollywood star can match Elon Musk for being in the headlines like every day with something controversial that he comes up with. You know, some crazy idea with you know. Just insane stuff, you know. Now I'm going to start a tunneling company. Now I'm making flamethrowers. Now I'm criticizing some guy in Thailand as a pedophile. Well, he'll just say anything, like, and it will make put him on the headlines. And um, that 
is is his power. Because honestly, Elon Musk can't build all these products, right? So he has his team does all that, but he's really good at seeing the big picture. He's, you know, he sees the big picture. He's really good at selling a vision of the future. Like honestly, we still don't know if Tesla is going to be able to compete. Like it's a crazy hard auto market. Like the auto market is a killer industry. It's a really tough industry and everybody's making electric cars right now. But he did, he, he basically built that brand. Like he marketed that brand. So all of us think Tesla is electronic cars. Like we associate Tesla with the whole segment. That's what great marketers do. With space, like honestly, will we colonize Mars in our lifetime with human beings? Probably not in the way that Elon Musk says, with lots of people thriving on Mars. It's an incredibly inhospitable planet. Like if you read about Mars, you you do not want to hang out there. I, I'll let Elon Musk go to Mars. Honestly, he can go and hang out there. I will stay on this planet with all its problems, climate change and everything. We're, <laughs> Mars makes climate change look like nothing. You know, it is a completely toxic planet. And to, to get a large population there, it's going to be incredibly hard. But he has that vision. He has been selling it. So two entrepreneurs here that we all know of really approaching being an entrepreneur in very different ways, but both being excellent at it. Mm, yeah, great case studies. And a few themes pop up there. Clearly with Jeff Bezos, it's timing is a huge one. And the ability to pivot and know that he should focus on something else. And also risk-taking which I want to talk about in one moment, because let's face it, it was a risk for him to make the return policy as easy as it was. And as it still is, by the way, it's still very easy to give. And he's, I think he's always trying to figure out ways to make the customer experience amazing. Having worked closely for and with Elon, I know he talks about all the time. We need to, we must, and the words he used is delight the customer. We must delight the customer. This, this is very, very common thing that Elon thinks about. And it goes from the point of you thinking you want to buy a Tesla to the point where you are now a Tesla owner and now all the things that go in between, between those two things. And he does an amazing job of it because he's constantly thinking of ways to improve the entire experience from top to bottom. The other thing that's really interesting is you mentioned Elon. I mean, you're right. A lot of people don't say he's a salesman, but actually he's fooled us all because he is the greatest showman of our time in a lot of ways. And he, he maybe is a bit awkward. He may stumble over his words. He's not an orator in the classic sense, but he is a showman. And you're right. He's in the news. So you cannot argue that. And he figures out ways. And you're right. There's so many just off the wall times where we've talked about him for bizarre reasons. Are they an accident? He's gotten like billions of dollars in free marketing just by being, I know. It's being crazy. out there. By the way, that was incredible insights, Captain Hoff. Completely agree with Jeff and Elon. One specific point that I also wanted your thoughts on that Billy is just about to dive into in terms of risk-taking and difficult conversations is the founder of Netflix, Reed Hastings. Because what fascinated me the most about Reed that I don't think a lot of people really think about is by transitioning from a DVD company where all of his executives are focused on operations to an online streaming company, he had to have a very difficult conversation with the exec team and end up firing most of them. 
and replace that team. So the question for you, Captain Huff, whether it's in regards to Netflix or just in general, is how do you think the best founders navigate those difficult conversations and those tough pain points in the business to get to the vision and the direction that they want to go to, regardless of what everyone else thinks? Reed Hastings is another exceptional entrepreneur. Well, he, I remember Netflix, you know, most companies would have died at the point where they had, they were the largest DVD male, male DVD provider in the world. They were doing incredibly well. And here he was cannibalizing his own business, giving away this online for a fraction of the price and believing that someday everybody would be online. When, like you said, most of his executives were like, that's crazy. We have a great business here. What are we doing with this, this online stuff? Like, it's crappy. Like, look at the quality. Like, in those days, it was crappy. Like, broadband was very limited. It was, you know, you get these videos online and nothing like we get today with our 4K experiences. And, you know, it, 1080p is so much better than what they had when they were making that transition. But he saw the future. He saw what was going on. Now, the thing that he did, which is amazing, is he just turn that company in a new direction. He like set the priority. And sometimes you literally have to let people go. And this is one of the hardest things I learned because I like to be the nice guy. You know, I want to be the guy. I want everybody to be happy. I don't, you know, and a lot of entrepreneurs I meet are like, oh, if this person's too valuable. If we fire them, we'll destroy morale. Like everybody will be like, you know, looking at me as the bad, bad guy, like firing them when they're such a nice person. At the end of the day, either somebody works or they don't. And being nice to them can be the kiss of death to your company. You, your job is not to be nice to everybody. Like, and you look at people like Elon Musk, you know, Bill Gates, they weren't necessarily the nicest bosses. Steve Jobs is, <laughs> you know, a tyrant. You know, they, you're laughing about Elon Musk. They're not necessarily nice guys, but they see what they need to do and they get it done no matter what. So they don't let anything stop them. That's number one. Number two, I have found you can still be relatively nice. You can't give everybody everything they want, but you can still be relatively nice and get hard jobs done, like laying off people. And I had this experience. I was like awful at laying off people at first. Like I didn't know how to deal with it. I felt guilty. I felt bad. Like, why do we have to lay off these people? You know, how do I have that conversation? I learned a, a lesson and that lesson was, and once I realized this, wow, laying off people, doing these hard conversations with your team when they're not going the right direction became really easy. Now, this is, there's one word that you need to understand that will make this so much easier. Just be honest. Just go to people and tell them, don't try to sugarcoat it. Like if you're going to lay somebody off or you're going to tell them that they're doing a crappy job, don't like point out all the good things about them and then spring it on them that they're, you know, and try or be passive aggressive. Those things almost invariably backfire. Just go to them. And don't be mean. You don't have to insult them. You don't have to, you know, berate them. I'm not talking that management style. Mm. You go to them and say, look, I'm not satisfied with the quality of work you're doing. You know, either you get in shape because this is what we need to succeed, or we don't have room for you in this company. And these are the, the you know, these are the areas I need you to improve. That's, you just have to say it to people honestly. And then afterwards, you can say, you, first you give them the tough news. And then afterwards, you say, look, if you need extra support, if you need extra training, we're there for you. But you got to know, you have to make this change. It's up to you. That is how you have to talk to people. Laying them off, it's the same way. I, I became better at that because you have to do that as a CEO. Like there are people who just aren't working out. I, came, I had this breakthrough when I sat down with this employee and I just said, 
you know, these, this is the reason we're laying you off, blah, 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 laying all the reasons, right? And we're going to do this. Like, you don't give them any wiggle room. You're not going to reverse your decision. Um, that just makes it much more painful, much worse. And then afterwards, again, I said, look, I know you tried really hard. I know this wasn't a fit for you because of, you know, very, all the reasons I pointed out. But, you know, I will try to help you get your next job. I will, you know, I'm there for you. And I'm also telling you this for your own benefit because you're young, you're not experienced. You need to know what you did wrong. So next time when you have a job, you don't make those mistakes. So you may think I'm not being nice to you, but I'm actually helping you out. So that I tell every manager, just be direct, honest with people, and they can take it. And it's a much better situation. When you go to your employees to announce why you made that controversial decision, like laying off key people in your business who everybody liked, you have to just explain again in exactly the same way. We made this decision for these reasons. Like, this is what we had to do as a business. I made that hard call. You guys, you know, that's the time, you know, and we'll continue to make these decisions whenever necessary. Yeah. And a compliment sandwich becomes a poop sandwich when people realize that you really just want to tell them the bad part and you're trying to figure out a way to sugarcoat it. I think generally people want to be told the truth. They want honesty. They want directness. I think generally, I mean, and obviously there's, it's nuance. It's, it's, you got to have the EQ and the awareness and the understanding of the other human being, right? Because every human being is different. And so you handle situations uniquely as uniquely as the individuals that you're, that you're talking to. Uh, but I, I fully agree and support the idea of this honesty is above all else. So in, in I just want to say one thing, you know, you're not, you shouldn't be the type of boss who walks in, you see somebody's wearing clothing. That's really ugly. Oh, that shirt is just hideous. Like, <laughs> don't you have any fashion taste? That doesn't do anything for your business. Like that's just insulting. You are being honest. You think it's a hideous shirt, but you don't have to say that. Right. So we're not talking about being hundred percent honest. You know, human beings, you have to have some tact. You have to be, you know, every, every, you know, some people just aren't good at fashion or whatever they're not good at. If it's not core to the business, don't, you know, you just be nice to people. But when it's core to the business, that's when you absolutely must be honest. hundred percent. So we just talked about Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Reed Hastings. And now we're going to talk about risk-taking. I can't think of entrepreneurs and risk-taking and not think about those three guys. Because, I mean, they are like the epitome. They are what risk-taking is all about. If they've, they've set example after example, and we've highlighted many of them in this conversation. And you highlight in your book just how important it is. In fact, you go as far as to say that if somebody's not willing to take risks, that's a huge red flag and a huge warning sign that likely they won't reach the level of success that, that they could or that they should. So let's just talk a little bit about that. And then I, want, I know Brendan has some questions about kind of trends and where we're headed in the future. And I'll let him go into that, that route. But let's talk first about risk-taking. Risk-taking. I like to say, when you're an entrepreneur, if you aren't going to take risks, forget it. Like, this is one of the things that goes back to our initial discussion. Should you be an entrepreneur? You have to know yourself. Like, can I handle stress? Do Am I a natural risk-taker? If you're always the type of person who's conservative and trying to limit risk in every way possible and never want to step beyond the line, you're probably not the best person to lead a startup. You may be a good in, in the accounting department or even a great in the engineering role. Like, you know, you don't want your system to crash and things like that. There's a role for you in startups, but not necessarily as a leader because 
If you're going to break through, if you're going to do something nobody has done before, better than anybody has done it, you are going to have to take risks. You, if you take risk out of the equation, you take growth and everything else out of the equation. It just collapses. Like you have nothing without risk. So we see these amazing entrepreneurs and they are not afraid of risk. Like Elon Musk is like the best. He'll double down every time. Like he believes it, has put his own money into it, doesn't care. He's going for it. Like, you know, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, he is like, he was always pushing that company. Literally, he never knew for the the be whole beginning, you know, like years of his company, whether he could make payroll, like because he would be spending every month more than he had, hoping that the shoes sold because he saw growth as the most important thing and always innovating, always challenging which products they were going to do, always coming out with new products, not saying, well, we're great in this running shoes. Should we do tennis shoes? Should we do, you know, soccer shoes? You know, he would just say, we're doing them. Like <laughs> we're going out there. We're going to dominate every market possible. The company's risk and rapid growth go hand in hand. Venture capitalists know this. If we, if we don't see risk companies out there who are thinking big enough, we don't want to fund them. Literally, they could be great, smaller, medium-sized businesses. And there's nothing wrong with being an entrepreneur and running a smaller, medium-sized business, low risk, you know, you manage everything, everything's predictable, but that's not the type that is going to go public. That's not the type who's going to get acquired for the sums of money that venture capitalists need to make any return on their investment. Mm, right. And you discuss this idea of like a fund maker, right? Like it may be just one company out of dozens or even hundreds that get backed to get the the financial umph to to accelerate their business and to move their business forward but it's the one uber it's the one airbnb it's all these few there's very few companies that reach the levels of success so speaking of that before i let brendan go into the future world which you love talking about the future we haven't even like i mean that's a whole nother episode right there but uh, I know Brendan has some very cool questions about where we're where we're headed. Before we go there, I have one final question. And that is, most startups fail, and this is from all of the studies that you've looked at. It's because they can't find a market fit. And based upon you know reading your book and also my own knowledge of of success stories and failures, early feedback matters and understanding how the market will adopt your product, your service is critical. How does a startup founder get this right? And, and I don't know if you have suggestions on feedback or, or working with closely with early customers, but if that is the number one problem, again, I want to say this again, the number one reason startups fail is they can't find a market fit. So what can a startup founder be doing proactively to avoid that common pitfall? This is the problem that startups face. If you have a product market fit, and what we mean by a product market fit, let's say you go out to 100 customers, right? And you show them your product and they go, wow, that's a good product. Come back later when it's done and we'll try it out. And all 100 say this. Everyone says this. Most entrepreneurs will feel great. Like they all said it was good. Come back when it's done. They'll try it out. That company though is dead in the water. Like the entrepreneur doesn't know it but they are dead. They are building a product that none of their customers will pay for. Because if they would pay for it, they wouldn't say, oh, good, come back later. They would say, I need it right now. What can I do to get it? How much can I pay you? My God, like 
you know, can we, is there any way I can be a beta user? They would be doing whatever they can to get that product in as early as possible. That's when you know you have a product. And it, that's, you know, so there's a lot of false signs. When people say nice things to you, uh, but don't take action, that is basically getting you out of their hair. They don't want to deal with you. They don't want to spend a lot of time. The easiest way to get somebody out of the room is to nod, say nice things, and come back later, right? So you, you don't fool yourself. It's too easy for you to drink your own Kool-Aid, for you to believe <clears throat> that what you have is great in the smallest confirmations you'll like jump on, and then you'll filter out all the, all the negatives. That people have biases. We have to recognize this. We all do this. Like it doesn't matter how great you are. We all do this. So at an early stage, you have to seek external validation and really uh, quantify whether it's real or not. Like, you know, are, are they willing to, to, are their actions going to back up their words? If their actions aren't backing up their words, you don't have anything. And you need to recognize that hard truth. And the sooner you recognize it, the better. Like I like to say, and you pointed this out, kill your babies. Like you, you give birth to this product, you know, it's in its early stage. It's your baby. You love it. You know, you think your job is to grow this baby. No, at an early stage, your job is to kill that baby. Like, like it sounds horrible and a gruesome metaphor, but that's because it's so painful. Like you have this baby that you've given birth to and you need to know if it's going to survive in the cruel, harsh world out there. If it's not a survivor, you need to get rid of that and create a new baby. Like literally, like not all babies will survive in this product, baby products. Most baby products will die. So you need to, that's why we talk about MVPs, minimum viable products, getting the product early into the customer's hands. You know, are, can they use it? Are they actually engaging with it? Getting metrics and numbers, not opinions. You know, what, what are the hard facts? Like if it's a consumer application, Literally, a lot of times you just have to put it out there and you have to put it out there in spending as little time and money as possible. A lot of the best game companies like out there literally would launch like 50 games. You know, the company that made <clears throat> Words with Friends, which became a big thing and got bought <clears throat> by Zynga like, and Angry Birds. Each of those companies had made like 50 games, which did some totally did nothing and some did mediocre. And then just that one product, boom, like it just took off the, the market, like went crazy over it. And that one product is what made those companies. So it's true of everything you do in the world. Like one winner, and you were pointing this out, it's venture funds know this, venture capitalists know this. Like they look at their portfolios, every one they thought was a winner. They wouldn't have invested if they didn't think each one was a home run. Like every time they gave those 20 companies money, they thought everyone would be home run. And then they look at the end of the day, and they figure out, wow, one of those companies is worth more than all the others combined. Like literally one of those companies really got it. That is the way the world is. That's the way it is when you're creating products. Don't, entrepreneurs die, not because they give up on products too early. They usually die because they stick with them too long. They like, keep working on this thing. Even, you know, I'll add this feature. I'll make this change. I'll do this. You know, if it's not taking off, I like to say, you know, after you put it in the marketplace and you're and people just aren't going crazy over it, just throw it out. Like start over because, you know, just trying to make make that ugly baby look better isn't going to work. So that is that is the answer to your question. Mm, yeah, you know, and I want to pass it over to Brendan here shortly. But the 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 one thing that I mean, amongst everything that you've just said, the one thing that really like 
slaps me in the face, and I think hopefully others as well, is that most businesses, most startup founders, it's not that they're uh, not spending, uh, not, they're spending too much time. It's not that they're not spending enough time. They're spending too long with the same idea. And then therefore, because of that, they are basically, they're overly wedded to their ideas. They're married to their ideas. And I love the analogy, kill your baby. I like you studied film. And in my screenwriting class in college, I learned of this phrase for screenwriting because screenwriters obsess over their scenes in a movie and they want everything to be in their movie. But the reality is not every scene deserves to be in the final screenplay. Sometimes you need to remove those scenes to make the entire experience better for the audience. And the same holds true for an entrepreneur. So it applies in the same way. And I think we got to be prepared and ready. And you got to look at the success stories out there. The people that have had tremendous success were able to kill their babies. They were able to pivot. They were able to go a new direction. They were able to throw out the things that didn't work. Um, one, one quick question, and then I want to go over to Brendan. Because what you said is so true that most people, when asking for feedback, they're going to get the, yeah, it's great. I love it. And the reality is they just want you out of their hair. And, they, and, and it may not even be that. It may just be that they want to be nice. They, they want to tell you what they think you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. So how do we get ourselves as a founder in the situation where we can have real honest feedback? Like what's the, what's the best way to get that as opposed to get this fake and, you know, let's face it, more common feedback, which is just, yeah, it's great. People want to be nice. They don't want to insult you. And remember, you're just asking people to look at it. They don't have a stake in it. Like if you're asking people who don't have a stake in it what they think, their opinion is virtually worthless, honestly, because they don't know. They don't have a stake. Like, are they going to be the, are they really, you need to figure out who your customer is. Like who really is going to use your product and, and who is really going to either need it or just fall absolutely in love with it. And like, if it's a social thing or, you know, some entertainment thing, they just love it. They're going to tell all their friends, you know, you need to find them. You need to go to them. And then you need to not just ask them questions. You need to make sure that their actions mirror their answers. Like, okay, you love this product. So you're going to adopt it. Like you're going to, you know, if they're not coming to you, they're not chasing after you to get the product. Whatever they say doesn't matter because people will do what they really feel. You know, I like to say people have priorities. You know, we all have priorities in our life. We have so many things we could be spending our time on from, you know, fun entertainment applications to, you know, things we need in our daily life to things we need in business. But we, we tend to only gravitate towards like the top three. Like, you know, if you're in a business and it's not solving one of your top three pain points, forget it. Like, I don't need it. Like, you know, I, it could be great, could be nice to have, but I'm just not going to deal with it. Like, mm -hmm. and this is true of everybody in a company. So if you're a marketing person, if it's a marketing product, like you're going to have three top priorities that you're going to need. And if it's not in those three, if it's number four or five, or God forbid, six, you know, it's still pretty high priority number six, you, it means nothing to them. Like they're never, they're never going to really invest in it or get around to using it. So 
you need to find out like what are those priorities people have what do they you know what 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 will you know a lot of people like it's revenue like i need revenue if you can show me a way to to increase my revenue by 30 percent, i'm there with you or i i we need to make this more efficient this is totally inefficient process we're wasting so much time if that's one of your top three priorities and you're nailing it for them great or they um they have some a problem that they can't solve. Like there's literally a problem, a disconnect in one of their systems or whatever, and you're coming in and fixing that. You need to figure out, is it on their top three list? So instead of trying to sell them your product, instead of even trying to show them your product at the beginning, start talking to them. And most importantly, start listening to them. Asking the right questions, listening, observing what they do, what they're going after. Then you can start to understand whether they're even your customer. And if they are your customer, are you on their radar? Like, are you in that top three? I love that, Captain Hoff. Thanks so much for sharing that. You know, and speaking of venture capital, right? And speaking of solving the pain points, we couldn't have a podcast with you without getting your opinion on the future and your opinion on how things are. So my first question to you is regarding the state of the union. You know, a lot of venture capitalists are saying this is the year where startups have received the most funding in the history, even more since the dot-com bubble burst in the 1999 to 2000 era that you were a part of yourself. So my first question to you is, what do you think of the current fundraising environment right now in startups? And what do you think that says about starting a company or just in general, the competition about funding some of the great big pops that we're seeing lately? Like you said, there's never been a better time to raise capital. There is more capital in the marketplace than ever before in history. And who would have thought of this? Like when we were hit by COVID, everybody thought, oh my God, it's over. But no, it was just beginning. Like the party was just beginning. This, if you're an entrepreneur out there, right now is a great time to raise capital. Will it be a great time in six months or 12 months or two years? We don't know. Like nobody can predict these things. There's, you know, the world is such a complex thing. There are so many variables. We don't know what's around the corner. So it's really hard to predict what the funding will be in the future. You only really can bet on what it is now. And I tell entrepreneurs, if you're raising capital now, raise a lot of money. Like then if it gets worse, you have insurance. Like you can ride out the storm. And and if it's still great, well, you might have diluted a little more, but that's you pay, you know, that was the price you paid for the insurance. So probably a good idea. At the same time that you know we see startups raising money hand over fist, literally hand over fist, we have to understand that for every startup doing that, there are so many other startups out there. I meet them all the time that are having a painful time raising money. And it's the pain is compounded by the fact that all these other people are raising massive amounts of money and they aren't. They're like looking, it's, it's, I meet entrepreneurs and they're like, why not me? Like these guys, like they have nothing. They just have some idea and they're raising all this money. We have, some, we have something real and nobody will give us a dime. We're struggling. It's always that way. Even in bad times and good times, it doesn't matter. It, you, it's always been, it's really, really, really hard to raise money until it's not. <laughs> That's always the way it is. And you, you can't look at the other guys. You can't look at how much they're raising or what they're doing. You need to focus on your business. You are not entitled to raise money just because you think you need it. You, at the end of the day, the, most, the best thing you can do is prove to yourself this is a real business. This is a real business worth my time investing in it. And my time is my money. 
right? So I am investing in this company. Is it worth my time? Don't worry about what other people are doing and be harsh, right? And if you figure out it's not, you need to change. And if it is, stick with it, even though it's tough, because I will tell you, what you need to raise money is always the same. Some people get lucky. Yes, some people find an angel that just gives them tons of money. Some people are connected and other people just like pile on. They, there's this thing called a halo effect. You get one investor and everybody you know, respects that investor. Everybody else piles on without even looking at the deal terms. They just want to get in. So that's always going to happen. But you can't count on that for your company. Like that, if you're counting on that, well, that's just like wishful thinking. I'm going to win the lottery. I'm going to go to Vegas, you know, and walk out a millionaire. You can't count on it. Yes, it does happen to people every day. There's somebody every day who wins the lottery. There's somebody every day who wins a gambling. There are a lot of people who lose. In your business, you have to be really focused on the core metrics of your business. Like what's happening in your business? Why is it happening? Understanding those things. And when you get enough evidence, overwhelming evidence, that there is a market here, there is rapid growth, and you can lay that out in a way that really proves proves your case to investors, that is when the money will come for sure. Like, I'll tell you, investors aren't dumb. Like, if you know, they do make mistakes all the time. All of us do. We get emotional. We invest in things we shouldn't. Some people are brilliant salespeople. They could sell anything to anybody, you know, so they raise this money be just because of that. But if you have something, even if you're an awful salesperson, if you can communicate, just communicate those facts to investors, you will find investors. The problem is you're not getting funded now because you don't have the proof. You do not have enough evidence that this is going to be a great company to convince investors to come in. And you just have to own up to that fact. You have to double down and work really hard to figure out whether that evidence is out there. And if you can get it, and if you can't get it, again, reevaluate, pivot. If you can get it, you will get funded. And and that comment really speaks to the resiliency, you know, of the, some of the best founders that I'm sure you've worked with, that regardless of what's happening, they just keep toiling. They keep drip by drip, but by bit building out the product. Look at Airbnb. Every mm-hmm. investor told them, it's a crazy idea. You're going to invite a serial killer into your home, like have him sleep on your own, They're, or somebody will trash your apartment if you're renting out your apartment. Like, what's going to stop? You don't know these people. Every, but they said they believed like they were using their product. They were eating their own dog food. They were, you know, renting out their place and staying in other people's place. And they're like, no, this rating system will work. It really will work. You know, and they had proved it to themselves. So they stuck with it. I completely agree. I mean, Paul Graham even called them cockroaches because they just refused to die. Yeah. Right? I, I completely agree. And look, you they, own, they own the market now. Like I'm staying in an Airbnb right now as I talk about <laughs> So there you and, go. Right. I'm an investor of the company. So there you go. We're all, <laughs> we're all in. And, you know, speaking into that, you know, especially the point you made around how some of the investment is around, you know, the fear of missing out. It's very emotionally driven. So my next question for you is being an angel investor yourself. What are some of the industries that you feel the timing is right in the next five, 10 years, but also what industries do you also find are overhyped? So they're very exciting, but you personally find the timing isn't right for those, those sectors just yet. Okay. I will tell you honestly. So first of all, software is always great. Software is the evergreen product. If you want to do uh, so, if you do software, first of all, it, if you get engineers on your team and they're bought in and you don't have to hire them, they're like working for equity, you know, you can build, you can build it yourself without any capital. That is the beauty of software. And software has the power to literally transform the world. So AI in particular right now in the software categories 
it is like electricity. Every business on the planet, all everything we do will be made better by AI. Literally, you can make any process smarter, more efficient, faster through AI. So AI, and, and we're just we're just figuring this out right now. We're right in that transit. Still has a long run ahead of it. Very bullish on that. Um, of course, a lot of AI companies won't succeed, but the ones that figure things out, creating value, will. Software in general, there'll be new inventions. Like software is always morphing. We've seen the blockchain. We, you know, we're always seeing new things. If you're starting a company right now, I'll tell you, it's a hundred times easier to start a SaaS-based company, a software as a service company, than a consumer company. Like the consumer business is really tough. Like putting an app in the app store and expecting, you know, people to download it, a, a game or a social, a net, a new social network. That is a really really cutthroat, tough business. A few breakthrough and they're worth incredible amounts of money. And then all the others you never hear of again. So um, if you want to hedge your bets and be really smart, do B2B, do SaaS, right? In the software, really good space. And that will continue. Like there's always a need out there. There's always something you can do better for businesses and you can go right to them, right to your customer, figure it out before you even build the product. So that's one area I love. Um, you're looking out there, there's so many opportunities, more than there have ever been. Like, I will tell you that we, for time for to be an entrepreneur, you're so lucky now. Like, there, it's more, it's easier and there's more opportunities than ever before in history. That's because technology is evolving faster and faster. All of us are connected by this thing we call the internet. We're all exchanging ideas. We're copying each other. We're building on whatever everybody else is building. We're building widgets. We're using them. We're exchanging them. That is the power that is accelerating innovation. So, um, if we look, you know, space technology, Elon Musk, it's built a whole ecosystem on that, right? People thought it was impossible. He's done it. It's amazing. Jeff Bezos is in there. Richard Branson, you know, totally. If you want to go into that, you don't have to build rocket ships. Those guys are doing it. Like they're the big fish. They should be building the rocket ship. You can build software for them. Like that's great. You could build other pieces of this ecosystem that can be extremely valuable in the future. If you look at uh, genetics, like gene editing, CRISPR, you know, where you splice genes and create new and, and recode living organism. Absolutely. We're on the cusp of something enormous. We have decoded the building blocks of life. We can now create new species of plants and animals that never existed before. Like we are gods. Like, and you look at, it's the software of living beings, right? So genetic editing is just, it's really crude. It's like we're back in the old days of assembly language, you know, and it was really crude, crude, but uh, we are developing the tools right now that will allow us to literally create, you know, cures to all the major diseases, new types of plants and animals that maybe can survive as our climate changes. You know, they're developing these cows that can survive in extreme heat, these crops that can survive in, you know, extreme temperatures. All of these things are, are coming. They're in the pipeline. It's going to be an explosion. We're just at the beginning of that. You look um, at some crazy technologies like brain-computer interfaces and others, lots of potential there pe for people who want to look into them. They're harder. Robotics is harder. Things that involve hardware and stuff like that, much, much harder than software, but still a lot of opportunity. Blockchain. Blockchain, the whole ecosystem around it, pretty amazing. Like, you know, there's a lot of things it can do. They're building the whole DeFi system that are really going to change. They're already impacting finance, impacting the world. Be careful though. Like there are a lot of there's a lot of hype out there. There's a lot of people selling uh, solutions to things where people have no problem. Like they're they're literally it's a it's it's a gambler's paradise. Like so, if you're betting on altcoins, all these different altcoins, well, 
you're going to Vegas, right? You're, you're betting on, you, you, be, you have to be very selective at the end of the day because a lot of them will not be around. Like, so, it, so you may make a lot of money in the short term, but you never know. Like, so I just tell people, there's going to be innovation in this whole blockchain space. There'll be other blockchains. The blockchain is morphing and evolving. There'll be other technologies like that. Keep your eye on those. There's going to be a lot of opportunity there. So powerful, Captain Hop. I love the point about so much to look forward to, right? Computer brain interfaces, the way that software – I mean, David Sachs is an entire – venture fund craft that's just focused on SaaS. So I completely agree with the exciting innovation. So last question for me, and then I'll throw it back to Billy, is from the founders you've worked at with at Founderspace, with all the different companies, the different ideas, what have you personally learned mentoring those founders during a time like COVID, unprecedented situations? I'm curious to get your personal lessons and also the founders that you felt were able to rise above that treacherous situation and come out on top and the founders that might have not been able to make it i'd love to get your thoughts on that it has been a really tough time for some entrepreneurs and a really amazing time for others it's 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 sort of binary like a lot of companies they just received a huge boost through COVID. a lot of my friends who are game makers out there you know entrepreneurs in the gaming because people were stuck in their houses they're playing these games like crazy they saw their numbers going through the roof actually when you know the vaccine came out their numbers started dipping and people started to go out and stuff so they were like oh no COVID's over like it's a sad day for them it shouldn't be but for their business at least it was a sad day um however um there are other people who dealt with retail and 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 stores who dealt with travel painful, incredibly painful. People weren't traveling. People weren't going to stores. You know, people were opening up, you know, new food services and things like this. If they weren't home delivery, if they, they required you to be at a location, really tough. The smart ones of them, they, they acted fast. Like they saw that, hey, we don't know how long this COVID thing is going to be around. We're going to just change our model. Like we're going to totally pivot. We're going to, you know, we're going to go from having people come into physical locations we're going we're gonna to figure out how to do it online. A lot of people who do the event business got murdered. Like, mm. you know, these are people, did, they're doing these huge events. They were making tons of money. Like, it was great times in Silicon Valley to run events. All of a sudden, every, their revenue went to nothing. They literally had to, you know, the ones who were smart saw right away, this thing isn't going away fast. They started to, uh, literally, they had to scale down, like, really fast. You run an event company, Forget it. Like you're not going to be doing events for a couple of years. You better lay off those people, you know, right now because you, it's, you're going to be bleeding money. Like these, it's not going to be working. And then you've got to figure out: Will people do events online? How will they do them? Can I even make them profitable? And that's been tough. Like honestly, it's been really tough for the people in that space. Like a lot of them had very, you know, they were kings, but then online they're just another online you know, Zoom meeting, even though it was a huge event, it's just another Zoom meeting to right. us, to the customer, right? We don't care. Like the event was great because we'd go to this physical space, we'd meet these people, it was amazing. But online, it's just like every other Zoom meeting, you know, anybody could do from home. So they faced a lot of competition. Their brand wasn't as strong, really tough. I will tell you, you know, when you're stuck, when you don't know what to do when the world shifts under your feet. And this happens all the time. Markets are changing all the time. Things are always in flux. The one thing I tell entrepreneurs to do, go to your customer, 
go back to whoever your customers are that you have relationships with and say, what do you need now? What do you really need now? Like, how has your world changed? And can I make that easier for you? Because if you can come up with a solution that solves their problems right now that were probably different than before COVID, you may still have a good business. In fact, you may even have a better business than you had before. But if you just focus on the business you have had that is no longer working and try to patch it up, well, that's wasting your time, wasting your resources, and it, it will probably end up going nowhere. Mm, such valuable advice. And this has been an epic session. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity. And I hope we could do it again. I want to encourage everyone who's either listening live uh, or listening on the podcast, check out Captain Hoff's books, Make Elephants Fly, his brand new book, The Five Forces That Change Everything. And of course, the book that we just had an in-depth conversation, Surviving a Startup, as well as check out Space. If you're a founder, if you're a, somebody who's curious and wants to understand more, um, Steve, where can they find out more information? Anything that I missed, want to make sure that they have that as well. So easy. Just go to founderspace.com. Then you can find me. You can contact me. We have lots of free stuff there, tons of videos, tons of resources for entrepreneurs. Just come there. I'm also on all the social networks. Just search for Founderspace. Brilliant. Well, it's such a pleasure. I love your energy. I love your passion. I love everything that you're doing to help people like me, to help people like Brendan that want to continue to develop and, and grow. And all the other startup founders out there should be so grateful to you and all that you do to pour into them and to help them. Uh, I'm a massive fan and supporter of you and everything that you do. And so grateful that we could have this layered conversation today. Stephen Hoffman, AKA Captain Hoff. Thanks for being on Insight Live. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Billy. It's been a pleasure. 